So we are in a series at the moment, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Um, if you've not been with us, we're in our part six um, of our series right now. And as a Christian faith, we've often been told and we've been kind of repeating this over and over again that emotions are something to not be trusted, um, something you don't, you just lord over with praying, with just reading your Bible um, to try and push down what you are feeling. And so the, the week one was looking beneath the surface in answer to that, that we need to explore our emotions, that emotions are a good thing given by God. God experiences emotions and Jesus was fully aware of his emotions. And he knew to feel them, understand the why, but also give it to the Father. And so that was week one. We looked at brokenness and vulnerability. Uh, we've looked up, uh, at the gift of limits, that God gives us limits. He gives us identity that we might lean and find him in our limits, but also that we can co-labor together so much better when we know what my gifting, what my identity is, where I fall short so that another can come up and co-labor alongside. We've looked at an amazing message um, from Pastor Craig about grief. We don't talk about that enough in church. We don't talk about the, the pains and sufferings of losing a lost one or something dying in your life. We don't talk about those moments in life, but yet God moves through the very pains of our lives, redeems, restores, and does amazing work. He does some of his best work in those seasons. And so we, uh, one of the comments that was made, and I love this quote from the cry of the soul, emotions are the cry of the soul. They expose what we are doing with the sorrow of life. And in turn, reveal what our heart is doing with God. If you want to know how you're doing with your spiritual walk, check your emotions. There's this uh, funny idea. This, this analogy is going to stick with you for the rest of the day. Um, so I'm going to say it. It's a little disgusting, but at the same time, it will keep you. Emotions are the burp of the soul. You're very aware of when it comes up and you don't like it so much and you don't want anyone else experiencing that flavor of whatever's going on in your stomach. Um, but it comes up and it makes you aware of what is going on inside of you. So emotions are the burp of the soul. So whenever you burp, you can be, how's my, how's my emotions doing? But emotional health is to love well. It's to love well. And uh, we've dealt with five principles so far, and they've been very inward focused. And so the next two, this is seven principles we've been, we're going to be looking at. So this is the six out of the seven. The next two are the outward focus of what emotions do. So as we understand the five inward emotions, we begin to see um, encouragement growth within the two areas. And so this first part of emotional health is a model of how we love well, how we love well. And as a result, we will grow and cause to love well. And so if you have your Bibles, um, turn with me to Philippians uh, chapter 2. Uh, the words will be on the screen up there. And our Title for this message is The Embodiment or Incarnation. I chose embodiment because not many people use the word incarnation, but if incarnation works better for you, use that word. But the embodiment, the model for love. And so this amazing, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, such a wonderful word, it says, so if there is any 
encouragement in Christ, which there is, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, this does not mean that you agree with everything that I say or that we have one mind of theology based. And Paul is about to qualify what he means by one mind in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ. So Paul's given a definition of what the love is, and now he's going to give an exhortation through this wonderful poetry. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is every, above every name, that is the name of Jesus, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And everyone said, Amen. These wonderful powerful words. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for this message series, this wisdom that you have been giving to us. But Lord, that we know so well, Lord, that we cannot do this just after seven lessons. But Lord, that this is a life message that you are wanting to bring into us this morning. Lord God, I just pray that you would open our hearts this morning to this word. Open our ears, our eyes, and our minds to what you are wanting to say this morning. Lord, you are a good father. And Lord, you have good things for us. Anoint the words that I speak this morning. Help me as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll come back to that passage later on. I believe the primary job of the church is to love well. The primary role of the church in this world is to love well. And so what is that love, you say? Love God well. Love each other well. Love those in the world well. So love God well, love each other well, and love those in the world's world well. And so we find this in uh, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, that he says this, a new command I give to you. So Jesus had already spoken about love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But before he goes to the cross, the night that he spends with the disciples, he gives this commission. I give you a new command I give to you. Love one another. And so we could pause at that moment and have the best time ever as Christians, right? I just get to love everybody. Love you, love you. Whatever you're doing, I just 
love you. You look amazing today. You look so beautiful, Rachel. Um, you know, we could just be loving on people. Whatever they're doing, just loving them. But he qualifies it, which sucks. As I have loved you. So Jesus is already putting a qualification out there of I have you. And the problem is, is that we know what happens the next day. That he is going to the cross. That sacrificial love is what he is talking about. And to make things worse, he qualifies again. So you must love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's some tough words. Why would Jesus put all his foundation of who he is to the world by how we love one another? That's, that's some tough words right there from Jesus. Have you ever prayed uh, this prayer? Lord, I just pray for my, my work colleagues. I pray for my wife. I pray for my enemies. Lord, that they would know your love, Jesus. Lord, would you just open up the hearts of Washington. Let them know your love. And so we hope that what happens the next day when we go into work, our work colleague comes up to us and says, you know what? I just love Jesus. My heart has just had this revelation and I love Jesus now. I mean, that's what we kind of want, that they come along to us and say, tell me about your Jesus. Let me know about your Jesus. And that's the kind of heart that we can sometimes pray. I've prayed that constantly, but it's through you, 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 and you that Jesus is qualifying us by the love. He is wanting to rub us are the salt into the city, into our environment, into our family, the salt of who we are, rubbing us in to every inch and part of our communities. And so we see this again. Um, actually, he qualifies it again in case the disciples missed it in John 15. He repeats the same message to them. And first, John is a whole book about love. And we see again, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Wow. I, I can be called a liar many times because I think there are many times where I fall apart. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. And so we see this wonderful passage that we've seen those three loves, right? Love God well, love each other well, love those in the world well. But it seems to hinge on loving each other well. Because if we truly love one another well, God gets loved. See, I can love God really easily because I've got an idea of who God is. You know, I've got my God at times. You know, I can create a God that I like and love. And actually, sometimes God is so distant in my life, it's super easy for me to say I love God, but yet hate someone else. It's easy. I can confess all day long, I love God, I love God, but yet never change. I can do that. And so loving each other well in the church is the very hinge which brings loving God well and loving people in the world well together. It hinges on that very thing. So truly that we serve one another. We get to show God's love because love is hard work. Amen? 
True love is hard work. It's the crucifixion of self. It's the self-sacrifice love. That's the love, the biblical love that we talk about. And so just as we get into this message of love, I think it's good for us to qualify what love is not to start there. And so there are two things I want to talk about what the world associates love with. Love as a feeling. We have reduced love down to a feeling. So it means that I can love someone. I have to love someone means I have to like them in this world. Have we seen that lately in our culture? The polarized culture that we are experiencing right now, this is a very strong message. And in John 1, 3, 18, it says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. See, love, the agape love is an action. It is an action word. And that's why Jesus could said, you can love your enemies. Doesn't mean you have to like them. He says you have to love them. That means serving, self-sacrificing yourself. But the world has said and combined love with a feeling. And so that I love people who dress like me, who look like me, who listen to the same music, watch the same programs, have the same political view as me. And that's what the world's love has taught me, that it's super easy to love those people. Love is an action. It is self-sacrificial. It is the service of forgiveness. Um, and it is all things in that way. So love is not just a feeling, but it is an action of sacrifice. Love is not tolerant. I want to put that out there. Love as tolerance We've got some big confusion right now about tolerance. We believe being tolerant is being loving. And so we've got this message at the moment, to disagree is to hate in our culture, right? I mean, that is very, very strong. If you disagree with my opinion, you hate me. Um, we've identified... Um, the, uh, the values that we have, the belief systems with our identity, so that when you come against me, you are questioning my very identity. And I want to tell you today, to disagree is to disagree. Line in the sand. To disagree is to disagree. That is the end. There is no hate. There is no dislike to one another. To disagree is just to disagree. Boom. Amazing revelation, right? Nothing else. I mean, if the world could just hear that word right now, to disagree is just to disagree. Okay, cool. Still love you. Still want to walk alongside you. My love for you is not coherent to whether I like you or not. That's not. I can have opposing viewpoints. We had a, a great conversation yesterday as, as elders, and I loved um, Rick just sharing his heart that someone in the body of Christ had a completely different bit of political view to him. But I love that he said it didn't matter because there was this overarching theme that we both loved Jesus, that we wanted to see the kingdom go forth and it did not matter. And this is the church that we're going to be building. There are going to be people who are going to have left and right views within this church and we are going to co-labor together because our, our viewpoints, our likes and dislikes are not the definition of how we love in this church. We love and I love this because Elo uh, Weasel says this, the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, it is to be indifferent. 
See, tolerance is, an, is a form of indifference. Hate shows that at one time you cared, but now you've moved to the opposite way. See, if God was tolerant of us, he would have never sent his son to die upon the cross. And so often we confuse the God who is very, very, very slow to anger, who is extremely abundant in patience to tolerance. He does not tolerate the actions of this world, but he is loving. And so we must get this apart. I love, uh, Volterra has this amazing quote, which uh, is up on the screen there. Though I disapprove of what you say, I will defend to the death the right you have to say it. Though I disapprove of your opinion towards uh, abortion, same-sex marriage, these things of this world, I will defend the right you have to actually say these things, which is very different to what we want to say in this church. We want freedom of speech and even learning about um, Penn who was uh, over this state. He was someone who embraced many different voices, knew what the truth was, but yet had this religious freedom that kind of happened in and through. And that's, that's amazing. See, Jesus disapproved of the whole world, but laid his life down for it. And so that is the love that we want to understand. It is not a feeling. It is not tolerant, but it is true love. And so my theme of what I believe embodiment or incarnation, whatever word you want to do in that moment, a concrete or actual form of a quality or concept. So uh, a value and idea is manifested into physicality. And I love this passage, one of my favorite passages, John 1.14. I've got lots of favorite passages. The word, the logos. So in the Greek, the Greeks would have loved this word, the logos, because they believe that the knowledge of this world is the thing that moves and shapes. Knowledge is the thing that cultivates the universe. And so the writer of, uh, of John is using their language. And we understand that the word created this world. We understood that when God spoke, let there be light. Let there be, he spoke into existence. This great and awesome God who created all things that we know became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory in the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And I love what Eugene Peterson translates this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He moved next door. He's four doors down from you. He is present in the community. So why, why embodiment? Like why did Jesus, why did God say, you know what, the type of love that I want my people to experience is embodiment and I'm going to show them how to be that way. Why didn't he just say, hey, I just want you to say lots of really nice things over and over and over again and just live that way. Just be really nice to people. Well, I think the model of love in this way, um, illustrated through uh, a child, or so you would have experienced this in life, or if you've had children, you would have experienced this, when a nightmare, a cry in the night comes from your child. You go running to them, 
And they tell you the dream of whatever that, that's happened within them. For me, it's often Elijah with Hulk. He loves Hulk, but at the same time, he's scared of them, or it's all sorts of other things that are going on. I'm like, oh my gosh, come on. Um, and so I sit down alongside him. We pray with him. We say that Jesus is in the room, and he's like, thank you. He goes back to sleep, and literally 30 seconds later, crying again. I'm like, I was just in the room with you. Like, why are you crying? Like, it's fine. The light's on. You can see there's no like boogeyman under the bed. There's, there's nothing going on. But really what he's saying is, I need skin in the room. I need something physical in the room to see and move. See, skin in the game means something. In this day and age, we don't care about what people have to say. We really care, do they care for me? Are they physically present in this room, in this moment, in this environment? Are they physically here? It's going to cost you something to embody yourself and become the model of love. So let's go back to Philippians 2. We're going to look back at this passage here, concentrating mainly on the 6 to 8, because there are two principles that I want to pull just from this passage that I believe, and it's not something you're going to get overnight. It's going to require a lot of work, but it's something that we want to journey towards as a community. And so just reading through this passage again in verse 6, who through he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There are two points I want to pull from this. And one of the, the first words that I love there, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to grasp. Another translation is, he did not cling to his rights. God, all-powerful, all-knowing, emptied himself, became fully man. I find in the history of church, when we have gone into other cultures, when we have spread the good news of Jesus, that we have made those cultures exactly like a white Western church. You can go to Africa and find a white Western-looking church. It looks nothing like the surrounding culture but yet it looks like the white, blonde, smiley Jesus. And it's so strange that we come in with that mindset, that we don't come in to listen or hear the culture, but we come in to dominate and crush that culture. But this is the way it should be done. That is actually how evangelism really has been going on for over a thousand years. If you look anywhere, you will find church that is very similar. It doesn't embody the culture that's surrounded. There are many um, mega churches that have that idea. They just come in and show, hey, this is how church is going to be, rather than engaging with the community, finding its identity, because we're kind of afraid that Jesus might be washed out or he might be overdone. And that's why we come arguing in our points to so many people, because we feel like we have to defend God. We feel like the universe-making God, who has been and always has been, needs defended at all costs. And I found it really interesting. We're moving to this culture almost seven years ago. Do you know what I loved about this community and culture? You guys really listened to me. 
Um, I was always asked questions about my community and never to prove a point, but just to understand who I was. I love that. They always ask, you know, what's it like for you here? We've got this. And I really felt loved. And so my first point today is, if we are going to embody this love, we must have a heart that wants to listen. A heart that wants to listen. David Augsburger says this quote, Being heard is so close to being loved that the average person, to the average person, they are indistinguishable. There is no difference to just listening to someone than to actively serving someone because that's how much it means for someone. And when have you last heard people say, you know those Christians? They're really good listeners. They love to listen about my world. They just love hearing my stories. They love understanding the position that I'm in. They love listening to me. I don't hear that being said about our community too much. Now, I get there's all sorts of things and motives behind trying to shut that down, but I really don't hear that action because I feel like we're afraid of something. If we listen that God's going to be washed out, that we're, the power of Jesus will somehow be extinguished if we just listen and we don't prove our point to someone. It was on Wednesday, so after sharing devotions with the men, I was standing and chatting to one guy who had a, a Mother Nature t-shirt on, and he was chatting to me about how Mother Nature looks after him. Literally, I'd just been preaching a message on the power of God. So he knows my stance, but he's just talking to me about Mother Nature, Mother Nature this, Mother Nature that. And every part of me wanted to say, do you mean Jesus? Like I wanted to kind of like have like a little debate, kind of going, what do you mean? Like I, can, I can tell you that's Jesus, what you're talking about. But I literally just, uh, so preaching this word has helped me. I just listened. Oh, it's amazing. Well, Mother Nature is really taking care of you. I love that you've got this opinion that Mother Nature has everything for you. That's fantastic. And left it at that. Just left him with that view. And that was pretty difficult for me in that moment, if I'm honest. Because in me, I felt like I had to defend and change. And there are seasons of life, there are positions where we have to do things like that. But for the most part, how do we practice listening? See, Jesus listened. He listened really, really well. The woman at the well. He wasn't trying to disprove her, but he was asking questions. I love the very action of what Jesus was doing at the well. When he was asking for the woman to pour water, pour water up from the well was the very thing that he was doing to her soul. The questions that he was asking was drawing water out of her soul. He was listening to her and knew everything about her. He could have crushed her in a moment. There are many of you that have so much deep knowledge and understanding of who God is, you could crush someone with your knowledge. But Jesus didn't. What about the woman who was caught in adultery? Every moment he had, he was perfect, God was. He could have judged, Jesus could have judged that woman in that moment. But what did he do? He just said, go sin no more. You know, I don't hold it against you either, but go sin no more. I love that listening Jesus to Nicodemus who came at night hiding uh, from the Pharisees, but wanted to know Jesus. Jesus didn't come with a grudgment of why can't you just stand for your faith, but he came to listen to Nicodemus. Are we going to be people that listen to the people of our community? Second point, hold your identity. Hold your identity. In that same passage, we see that God is in the God form, but yet humbled himself as man. Jesus became one of us, 
without letting go of who he was. God became one of us without letting go of who he was. We often embody our environment. A lot of times growing up, um, hanging out with work colleagues, friends, uh, whatever, I noticed my language would start to change. I'd notice my, my thoughts and views towards things, especially in a circle that believed very differently to me. Growing up, you would always feel the peer pressure to be something. The peer pressure to have that value of what they have. Um, moving in and through you all. And so we often, and again, this is another uh, type of evangelism that we've decided to encompass. So we've kind of gone from the stance of we never listen to people. We just try to trump and beat people into believing the gospel. We went the other way completely and we lost our identity and who we were. We lost that identity of knowing that God's and God's values and we began to let washing away occur. And actually, we've discovered that that type of evangelism of looking like the world so much that we lose our identity, we actually lose more Christians than gain them. It's, it's a sad fact that what happens because they lose the very saltiness of who they are. They lose the fact that they are the light of the world, that there is a peace in following Jesus. What Jesus has to say in this gospel brings life and life to the abundance. The world right now is in chaos and we have the very answer. But if we are not living a life of peace, the shalom into the world, if we are too hurried to care, if we are too busy to give our time to people, then we are just as guilty of the world. It doesn't matter how morally right you feel that you are or that you have the answer. If you don't have time, if you don't have the capacity to love people, no one's going to care. And so it means that we have got to be opposite to the world. And we're going to be talking about next week slowing down Sabbath. We're going to be talking about rest, church. And actually, I think, and, and in the commandments, I think that's probably the, and it's the, one of the many commands that the Israel broke a lot. Is a, the Ten Commandments has a lot to say about rest. And we fail it in it all the time because we believe that we are God of our own lives. And so, especially for you, and I'm, I have to say this, American culture really sucks at this. You're one of the worst in the world. You don't understand rest. You don't understand Sabbath. You don't take vacations because you believe that you just have to keep working yourself into the ground. You and Japan are probably the worst in the world. And so we've got, it's a reality that we can, but we can be that shining light to them. We can show the world a better way. That you can be an efficient worker and actually get a job done maybe even quicker you know, there's efficiency things. I think in Europe, they're doing like six-hour work days now. And an American, you're like, what? That would be mind-blowing to work for just six hours. I mean, there's, not, there's this medal of honor that you have to keep working 50, 60 hours a week. And I understand there are seasons for long, hard work. But if that is your constant medal of honor that you wear, that you worked 60 hours a week, to me, that shows you're not efficient at your job almost. That is a lacking to you. Um, so I, I, but there's so much strain on the culture. We've got to ask some questions about this cultural moment that we live in because it's not healthy. Anxiety, depression is through the roof. And we're just medicating ourselves to try and help ourselves to be whole. So that's for next week. That's Pastor Craig's job. <laughs> so I'll leave that with him. But are we going to hold our identity 
of a godly character. We're going to listen to people. And these two are almost opposing one another, right? Because I've got to listen to someone, but yet I've got to hold my identity. Johnny, how do I even do that? It's a great question. I have no idea. And each moment will be based on relationship with the Holy Spirit because you, I'm not going to give you a five-point step on how you work this out. But it is a dwelling of coming back to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, do I listen in this moment or do I let my identity be known in this moment? God, I really want to let them know what this moment, you know, this value is. Holy Spirit, just wait. Or you feel like you've been waiting and the Holy Spirit prompts in your heart, say that word right now. I'm going to guide you through this moment. We've got to live in the balance of listening and holding your identity. And so just some final thoughts as we just wrap up here. So why is this important to our church? Why is this important to covenant life? I love that phrase that when I first came, I heard Pastor Craig gave a safe place to call home. Many of you have seen that phrase up there, maybe walked past it and thought nothing of it. It's not something that we actively talk about, but it's there all the time as a great reminder. And uh, speaking to Joe this week about that. See, we want to be a safe place that is not going to remove you from the, the pain of this world. This is not a safe place that's a bubble, but this is a safe place for you to feel angry, to feel sad. It's a safe place for you to have extreme joy at the same time. Because I believe in community, we need that rubbing against one another. As someone who is mourning to someone who has just had the greatest breakthrough of their lives. And we cannot diminish one another. Because often the person with joy doesn't want to come into joy because they know the suffering that's occurring. But your joy is needed in the room. Because these people need to see that there is a different way. There is a a new day that's coming. Though the pain may last in the night, the joy is coming. It's coming. So don't distinguish or extinguish your joy, nor to the person that feels pain. Because the person with joy needs to be reminded that there will be pain one day. There will be some suffering that will come into your walk. And we have to balance both of those out in our walk. And that's why community is so important. To remind ourselves that we are finite to remind ourselves that this is a small moment in history and we are to make the biggest impact that we can, to make sure the next generation knows that, to leave a legacy for more to come. That's the reason why we're talking about this. These are principles. These are foundations. We are not going to change in a couple of weeks and suddenly have all these messages down, right? Right? We're not, but if you want to be active in this, and so there's actually sheets that we have. So I've been asking you a bunch of questions every kind of week when I've been doing it. I would love for you, and if you would like to, um, there's sheets, if you want to raise your hand, if you want these sheets, there are questionnaires for you to ask yourself questions about how you're doing. And I'm going to put this responsibility on you. This is your responsibility. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, I'm not going to parent you into this, I'm going to say, hey, if you want to look at the areas that you are broken in, so the the survey, the questions themselves actually help understand where your weaknesses are. For me, gift of limits, understanding that I am limited was a really hard one for me to understand. And so um, I need to work on that area. I need to understand my identity. And so I want for you to begin to explore where am I? I broken because we want to create a safe place to call home. We want to love 
other people well. You need those five principles so that you can love well. If you do not understand brokenness and vulnerability, how can you have empathy for other people? If you don't understand your limits, how are you going to have capacity to love people well? If you are not going to let grief and loss enter into your world, we will not love people well. If you don't understand the generational curses that we live in that pull us back into other things in our lives, if you don't understand that, you cannot love people well, nor can you rest. So these two things that we're looking are the outworking. Because loads of people can say, yeah, I understand brokenness, vulnerability. I understand limits. I understand all these things you're talking about. But if I see that you're not loving people well, then you haven't got it. It's a great external factor that checks your heart to see if you've got this going on right. And this is a lifetime. These are principles that we are going to come back to as a church. In fact, Pastor Craig's got the last message. And then we're going to take a Sunday just to reflect on all that we've learned. So I'd love for you to search your hearts. What has been something that really has inspired you this week, over these uh, seven, uh, you know, the seven weeks? What has challenged you over these seven weeks? And we're just going to have an informal chat. We're just going to have, you can come share your thoughts and what you feel. We're just going to have just a conversation about what we have learned and just take some time to rest in the words that have been spoken. And so this is why we're doing what we're doing. And this quote from N.T. right as I just finish up here. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this. This is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. Whose world are you going to enter into this week? Just with every head bowed across this place. God, right now, I just pray that you'd give us just one person that maybe we haven't entered into their world to listen to them. God, that is such a difficult challenge for us, especially when we don't like them. (laughs) When we really don't like them, they rub us the wrong way. Lord, I just pray right now for grace. Lord, those 12 disciples who walked together did not like one another all the time. They probably rubbed each other the wrong way a lot of times. But there was grace. And so, God, it is not in our own strength that we do these principles. But it is leaning in, understanding that we are so broken that we cannot do these things alone. Holy Spirit, would you just begin to stir in us a strength Understand where our weaknesses are because you are strong in our weakness. And Lord, just give us the peace. Lord, I pray that we would be a congregation that would exude the shalom into people's lives. We don't have to strive or strain. But Lord, just being in your presence changes everything. Let us operate from a space of being in your presence, being in relationship with you, abiding in the vine. Let us always come back to being with you. So Lord, I just pray blessing upon our weeks. Lord, help us to be still and know that you are God. I am not God. I cannot do this alone. Help me to develop an identity of sonship, of daughter, 
Lord, help us to be sons and daughters, children of the Most High. Help us to rest in you. Help us to be the model of love that just doesn't say nice things, but actually models love, embodies love. We thank you and all you're going to do this week. In Jesus' name, amen.